Welcome to Without a Sound, where we talk about unsolved disappearances and the legends, rumors, conspiracies that come from them. Thank you for joining me, and let's get started. to my podcast without a sound uh last week we talked about glenn and bessie and i did forget to mention where i got my information which was wikipedia and the podcast the trail went cold which is actually a really good podcast that i had never heard about normally i just stick to my favorite um my favorite murder which is how i started um thinking about the idea of podcasting uh so anyways today's episode is going to be about malaysia airlines flight 370 and the disappearance of this uh airplane and it's 227 passengers that were on board okay so welcome again and let's get started Okay, so Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 was flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport and its destination was going to be Beijing uh, International Airport. On the early morning of March 8, 2014, Flight 370 was due to take off. Um, so at 12.42 a.m., it took off from runway 32R and was cleared by air traffic control to climb to approximately 18,000 feet or 500, sorry, 5,500 meters. Okay, so the pilot in command was 53-year-old Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah from Penang. And he had joined Malaysia Airlines as a cadet pilot in 1981. And after training and receiving his commercial pilot's license, he became a second officer with the airline in 1983. Uh, Then he was promoted to bigger, I guess you get promoted from, you start off with smaller airplanes and you get promoted to bigger and bigger. By 1991, um, sorry, in 1996, he was captain of an Airbus A330-300 and then captain of the Boeing 777-200 in 1998. Um, so he had about 18,365 hours of flying experience. So this was like a veteran flyer, you could say. Um, his co-pilot was 27-year-old first officer, Farik Abdul Hamid. And he had joined Malaysia Airlines as a cadet pilot in 2007. And after becoming a second officer of Boeing 737-400 Airlines, he was promoted to first officer of the Boeing 737-400 in 2010. And then he transitioned to the Airbus A330-300 in 2012. And in November 2013, he began training as first officer of the Boeing 777-200 aircraft. So flight so for flight 370, by the time he got to this flight 370, he had at least accumulated about 2,763 hours of flying experience. Um, so that is quite a bit of flying hours, not as much as a captain, but of course that's why he's a captain. Okay, so they took off. 
The planned duration of this flight was about five hours and 34 minutes. And the aircraft was due to consume about 37,200 kilograms of fuel or about 82,000 pounds of fuel. Um, even though that was the set amount, this aircraft actually carried about 49,100 kilograms of fuel or 108,200 pounds of it. Um, including, this is not including the reserves, I'm sorry, this is actually including the reserves. So technically, this airplane uh, with this amount of fuel would have lasted at least 7 hours and 31 minutes in the air. If it had to, of course. Okay, so once the flight had been cleared to take off and, and it had reached about 18,000 feet, that was where it had to be. Um, at some point, I, about an hour into the flight, they, they switched over from Lumpur Radar to Ho Chi Minh Area Control Center. At 1.01, Flight 370's crew reported to Lumpur Radio, sorry, Lumpur Radar, that they had reached flight level 350, which they confirmed again at 108. Um, but according, okay, that was radar. So radar is different than a voice communication um, and transmission. So the aircraft's final transmission was an automated position report, but that occurred at 106. The last verbal signal, the air traffic control, happened at 119 uh, when Captain Zahari acknowledged a transition from Lumpur radar to Ho Chi Minh. Um, so the final transmission reads as follows. Lumpur ra radar says Malaysia, Malaysian three seven zero, contact Ho Chi Minh, one two zero decimal nine. Good night. And then flight three seven zero captain responds, Good night, Malaysian three seven zero. And that is the uh, and that is it as far as a verbal transmission. That was the last that was ever heard from Malaysian Airlines 370. Okay, so at the aftermath, kind of, Malaysia Airlines issued a media statement not until 7.24, one hour after the scheduled arrival time of the flight at Beijing was due to arrive. So an hour later, that's when they uh, issued a media statement. Uh, they stated that communication with the flight had been lost by Malaysian ATC at 2.40 a.m. And the government had initiated search and rescue operations at that time uh, when contact was lost and then later corrected to 121. That was when the last, I guess they corrected it when they initially lost all kinds of uh, transmission, verbal, um, and any sort of transmission from them was at 121 a.m. 
So neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication systems relayed a distress signal. There was no indications of bad weather or technical problems before the aircraft vanished from the radar screens. It just vanished. To this day, the black, ba- the black box was never found. Um, pieces were never found. It just disappeared. And I will be posting on Instagram some images because you can see where when Malaysia 370 is on course, it is heading over to Ho Chi Minh City and then it swerves. It swerves and then it makes a left and then they they just lose it. So I watched this documentary on it and it showed um how they kind of figured where it went because at this point what they explained was everything was off. The airplane was not even on anyone's radar. And sadly, what came to light by the loss of this aircraft was that a lot of countries didn't want to share their, uh, I guess, radar (laughs) capabilities because then they, you know, others would be able to see what really they were, their capabilities are. And so that was kind of something that came about when this flight disappeared um so anyway so this documentary that i watched uh i'll quote it at the end because i can't remember um the name of it uh found some gaps um one like going back to the people that were on this airplane there was actually apparently two people uh, to persons that got through security with fake passports, these were Ira- they were seek they were Iranian and they were seeking um, uh, they were seeking to be refugees somewhere in Europe. But okay, so those two pa- passengers weren't weren't even red flagged when they went through. That was one thing that was found. Then, apparently, they say that the crew, uh, no one really looks at the crew. And this is post, this is 2014. This is post 9-11 where you're supposed to, you know, go through several checkpoints, at, you know, as a passenger, several checkpoints, be, you know, shoes are taken off and everything. But the crew does not need to do that. Uh, there's actually footage that they showed where they kind of just like let them through. Uh, so the crew is kind of overlooked and what the documentary brought about was that, Hey, if there is a bad seed, that's one way to be able to get through. I mean, if the captain of an aircraft takes over uh, you know, the passengers kind of have no choice but to go along with whatever is happening. Also, uh, carry-on bags. There were the scrutiny that goes on with uh, carry-on bags. They were saying that someone could bring in small explosives and it could look like a piece of sausage or a piece of salami. You know, I don't know that that's ever happened. Um, but... Uh, 
it's a plausibility that they, you know, something that they exposed in this documentary. Also, it's strange that the block, sorry, I keep saying block, the black boxes were never recovered, even though these were meant to survive underwater. And not only that, they were meant to survive crashes as well. So the fact that they were never located, it's kind of strange. Although there's like a time, I found out that there's like a time limit. After 30 days, not only it stops, there's a like a homing beacon on these black boxes that, you know, gives out like a little ping out like you know several kilometers but not it's not a big distance that they do that so it's kind of if this plane went down in the ocean it's kind of looking for a needle in a haystack because it's going to be hard to try and find a small black box within the entire ocean um and they figured based on the pings there was this company that went in and kind of you know, looked at the pings. They did some scientific stuff that, you know, I don't want to go into because I kind of understand it, but I'll probably botch it up for you guys. But the point was that when they looked at these pings, the aircraft could have headed either north or south, but they decided that the airplane had headed south. So south into the Indian Ocean. So they believe that the aircraft went down somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And so they kind of had like a spot based on, again, again, this is based on not even radar because it didn't come on on anyone's radar. No one shared that information. It was just based on these pings that an aircraft kind of sends to the satellite and then that satellite is sent to the manufacturer. So these pings, and these pings don't really give you a location. They kind of just let you know that the aircraft is still in existence. That's basically what these pings are for. And so they're almost like... uh, like sound waves that they pick up um that you know obviously that you know that the airplane is still up in the air so that's how they figured that this airplane was still out there at some point those pings stopped and that's how they figured okay so they're timing it and they're looking for different locations so you know, they had two locations basically, but they figured it went down in the Indian Ocean. Um, and at that point, it had been hours uh, for them to start a search and rescue. Um, it was just mostly recovery. Again, it was um, it was difficult for the families and for I get everyone to kind of be in the year 2014 and a whole airplane with 200 and more than 227 passengers are lost. There is never a body that's recovered. Black boxes aren't recovered. Pieces aren't recovered. I believe like there was like a small piece that was found out somewhere near South of Australia. Um, but it, 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 
it's a mystery to this day. It's an unsolved mystery as to what really happened to Malaysian Flight 370. Uh, I don't... I... Some of the other theories that came about were that maybe it was hijacked. Not only hijacked, like physically, like someone went on the airplane, like it might have been the captain or the co-pilot or any pass or, you know, one of the two passengers with a fake passport, but it could have been a cyber attack, a cyber hijack, which they might have, you know, someone on the ground could have been sending signals up to the airplane and redirected the, you know, the airplane's flight course, where they were saying on this documentary that the captain would then literally have no control over this airplane and someone else would be flying this airplane, which is kind of crazy to think because if someone can do that, then we can figure out how to make a black box survive a little longer under sea or how to, you know, if you don't get any messages from an aircraft, which technically, you know, from the document, again, from this documentary and what I've read is not like, like they don't have to check in like every hour. It's kind of like they, you hand each other off to like the other control center, aircraft control, control center. And that's it. Like there was no like, there's no check up checking on the aircraft, which I think should be a little bit more done more, especially for longer. Like there should be a limit. Like if your flight is more than three hours long, please check in like every hour. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas out there on how we can solve some of these situations. But they, you know, they had a think. It was almost like a think tank about how to prevent these type of situations happening because it, it's not the first um airplane to disappear um from from radar and they've you know this has happened several times okay so if the official assumption is confirmed flight 370 at the time of its disappearance is actually actually the deadliest aviation incident in the history of Malaysian Airlines, surpassing the 1977 hijacking and crash of Malaysian Airlines Systems Flight 653 that killed all 100 passengers and crew aboard, and the deadliest involving a Boeing 777, and surpassing Asiana, Air- Asiana Airlines Flight 214, um, in both of these categories, Flight 370 was surpassed actually 131 days later by Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, which was another Boeing 77-200ER, which was shot down on July 17, 2014, killing all 298 people aboard. And actually, just this year, on March 8th, 2020, six years after the disappearance, two memorial events of this anniversary were held. Families of Malaysian Airlines 370 passengers called for a new search for the flight in a bid to seek closure. So, as we can see, families are still seeking to to feel closure and uh, in this case, of the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines 370.
Thanks for joining me today on the on reviewing the case for Malaysia Flight 370. Um, the the disappearance and what some of the experts say. I'm not an expert, um, and they you probably understand it much better if you go and you research this if you if you like. But that was just a little snippet of what I found and um, how crazy I think it is that in such a modern digital age um, that we lost a Boeing 777 um, and was not and were not able to recover anything from it so thank you guys for joining me and I will see you next time well I won't see you guys but uh, you'll be here and I'll be here alright thanks guys bye also, please remember to uh, subscribe if you liked it or like it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Without a sound.